0: Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. We're in the midst of a national conversation about many topics related to the American legal system. Though virtually everyone agrees that a just system is ideal. There are disagreements over how fair our current system is and what changes might improve it. Michelle Estes, a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology, conducts research on wrongful convictions. She joined me to talk about what happens to people who've been exonerated, how they were wrongfully convicted in the first place, and what they want people to know about them. Let's talk about what you're researching for your PhD.
1: Broadly, I'm interested in wrongful convictions, and we can talk more specifically about what that is um, here in a little bit but more specifically i'm interested in community reentry after someone has spent time incarcerated for a crime they didn't commit so as far as research goes there's there's a lot of research that looks at what contributes to wrongful convictions and how individuals come to be wrongfully convicted and all of that research is really important and contributed to the knowledge that we have but there is less research that looks at community reentry experiences. So, basically, I came to this project with the question of well, what happens after they're released? We just don't really know. And so, there are various aspects of community reentry, and I focus on employment. So, basically, how do they navigate the job market once they've been released for these crimes they didn't commit, and what are those experiences like?
0: When somebody is wrongfully convicted and it's discovered that they have been wrongfully convicted, what happens to them? What are they given as far as uh, something to make up for that?
1: Again, just a little bit about my research so far. So I'm interviewing folks who have spent time incarcerated for crimes they did not commit. So I'm interviewing wrongfully convicted individuals. And so far, I've interviewed 18 people. And I've also interviewed organizational employees that work for innocence organizations that you know, work to get folks released for wrongful convictions, and so I've interviewed fifteen of those folks,
0: like like the Innocence Project.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so they work for various Innocence Projects throughout the U.S. These fifteen organizational employees, and so what they talk about is when people are released, they are released with little to no support. Mm-hmm so they may be released with what kind of refers to gate money so gate money could be anywhere from $50 to $200 depending on what state you're in but they may be released with that and that's it but then some folks if they're they're officially exonerated they're released with absolutely nothing not even gate money and what what my participants talk about further is if someone is officially exonerated they're not eligible for various programs that are provided to let's say folks that are released on probation or parole. So folks that are released on probation or parole, they may have access to, you know, substance use programs or employment programs or housing programs or things like that. But because these exonerees, the folks who have been officially exonerated, because they're not considered to be on probation or parole, they don't have access to those services. So, What folks are the folks I've interviewed talk about is honestly, these folks are in a tougher, more difficult, challenging spot than people that actually committed crimes and have been released on probation or parole.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. So you've been convicted of a crime you didn't commit and then you are released and it's like, well, okay, you're free and that's it. Right, you've lost however much time. You probably have. Uh, people are going to suspect you, I assume, and you just get nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and beyond that, because they're in such a unique position, and there's typically, you know, someone working on their case, they may not know that their release is coming. Mm -hmm. So what that means is oftentimes they have a very quick release. So like their cases may be overturned very quickly and they're released the next day, which is, it's important, right? Because we don't want them there any longer Mm -hmm. than they've already spent there for a crime they didn't commit. But what that also means is they have not participated in what like community reentry programs while incarcerated, which other folks get the opportunity to participate in, which again, prepares them for release. So basically what folks talk about is they could be incarcerated one day and released the next. And it's just this huge, like, it's great that they're out, but then also it's kind of like, well, what do I do? I have to try and get in contact with my friends and family if I still have friends and family, right? Because they may have lost touch. Friends and family may have died while they have been incarcerated for these crimes. So it's just this really quick, like, what do I do kind of thing? And so I say all that because we don't provide them with any services pre-release, but then we also don't provide any services post-release.
0: I don't even know what to say. I mean, that's just, it's worse than I thought, mm-hmm. right? Like the fact that you were wrongfully imprisoned is probably the worst of it, but it's not the end of it. That's mm-hmm. amazing. So when they are released What usually leads to that? And I'm thinking of DNA evidence. Is that the
1: most common? That is the most common way that folks come to be released and then more likely to be officially exonerated. But there are other, there's a variety of things that could lead to a release. The judge overturns the conviction based on evidence. There's all of these other pieces besides DNA might fall into place. They find out that the prosecutor lied or hid evidence or things like that, or the person who actually committed the crime might come forward and confess. That's happened in some cases as well. So, while DNA is the most common, we do have some other ways that folks come to be released.
0: Do we have any idea how often it is that people are wrongfully convicted?
1: It's tricky. Because the numbers that we have are, and the literature refers to it as like a dark number, because Mm -hmm. they're large estimations. So I I pulled some numbers, approximately 1% of felony convictions are the result of a wrongful conviction. So that results in an estimated 10 to 20,000 individuals currently incarcerated for a crime they did not commit. Now, other estimates suggest that as much as 6% of the total incarcerated population is innocent. So that's as many as 140,000 individuals. Mm. So again, these are broad estimations because we can only count those that are known, and it's likely that more have occurred. And so we don't have concrete numbers. We can only use the science that we have so far to make an estimation. Now, I do want to say that we have concrete statistics on exonerations, Mm. and we've been using that term, and just to provide a definition, exoneration refers to a person being cleared of charges due to the discovery of new evidence that indicates innocence. Now, in the United States, and these numbers are updated on a fairly regular basis, and so I updated my numbers last week so that I could provide you with the most accurate numbers on exonerations. So in the United States, there have been a reported 2,674 exonerations, which have resulted in more than 23,950 years loss among wrongfully convicted individuals or wrongfully incarcerated individuals. We've also seen a total of 172 individuals that have been exonerated from death row. So those are the concrete numbers that we have related to wrongful convictions and exonerations. And you mentioned death row. My understanding is
0: there are cases where people have been executed and we've later learned that they were not guilty. Is that is that true do we have definitive proof of that?
1: I know that there have been there have been some cases where one of the innocence projects or innocence organization has been working on cases and people have been up for execution and they have been executed and they have a very good argument and they have a lot of evidence to indicate that this person was innocent and then they they were executed and then if you think just like historically what we know now that maybe what we didn't know as far as science and DNA and things like that it is very likely that yes more than one individual has been Innocent and then executed. Mm.
0: And you mentioned a minute ago how people are exonerated. How does it happen that people are wrongfully convicted? Because assuming the best of the prosecutors and the jury and all of that, it seems like that would be difficult for it to happen. But these are humans, they're not
1: perfect. There are a variety of things that can contribute to wrongful convictions. So you've got Sometimes police get tunnel vision. So they're working on a particular case and they've got, you know, pressure from the community and their higher ups and things like that. And so they focus in on one individual and they get like tunnel vision, right? We also see that sometimes eyewitnesses, they make mistakes. If you are witnessing a potentially dramatic or traumatic event, You may not recall it in the way that it actually happened. And so we see mistaken eyewitness identification. We see prosecutors, prosecutorial misconduct, right? So sometimes they do lie. Sometimes they do make mistakes. They hide evidence, different things like that. There are forensic errors as well. So you have maybe a forensic scientist that comes in and presents some type of evidence um, and makes these really large claims, which they're overclaims they they say that oh we're 99% matched or whatever when that's not really the case and then some folks have argued again like the structure of the criminal justice system or their criminal legal system I'm sorry so many people are being funneled in that they have to be moved at an appropriate speed or it'll stop and clog up so sometimes we see that it's it's more about just trying to push people through quickly and that's problematic. And we see that, you know, oftentimes different actors in the criminal legal system, their job depends on convictions. And so they work to get convictions. Even, and, and the cost is that sometimes those are wrongful
2: convictions.
1: We also see things like the race of the individual in the, in the case. We also see their mental health, mental capacity who were the victims, different things like that we see also can impact wrongful convictions.
0: Another factor I understand is false confessions, which Mm -hmm. I think most people, if they don't, I, I like true crime stuff, for example. So I know of some cases of false confessions, but I think most people, if you don't know much about it, that seems ridiculous. Why would anyone ever confess to something they didn't do? But that does happen, right?
1: Yeah, it, it, unfortunately, those things do happen. And and I had the same mentality before I became familiar with this topic. I thought the same thing, right? I think that that's a common thought. Why would you ever confess to a crime that you didn't commit? But again, we have to consider all the factors. So various factors that can contribute to this. What's the age of the person being questioned? And so then, of course, that impacts their brain, is their brain even fully developed at that particular age? What is their mental health capacity? Do they have mental health issues that shapes it? And then also oftentimes individuals may be questioned under very extreme circumstances. So for example, they may be questioned for long periods of time. So there's like fatigue if they're Mm -hmm. kept there for a really long time and, you know, they may hunger or thirst or whatever may also set in. And so sometimes and I talk to my students about this in my class, it's kind of like, I just want to go home, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't, I just want to go home. So those are some things that kind of contribute to an individual falsely confessing. I've also, some of my participants I've spoke with, they discuss hypnosis techniques had been used on them Mm -hmm. to falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit. They brought in this individual and this this was years ago. Um, It was an old case, but they had brought in this individual and they they did like hypnosis on her. And that's what caused her to confess to this crime that she didn't commit. Then sometimes, again, we have to think of different circumstances of individuals. So sometimes they're told, well, if you confess, then you get this lesser sentence or this lesser charge. And so they may be thinking to themselves in their particular situation, well, I already have a criminal record. I don't want it to get worse. Or maybe I have kids at home. I need to get this done. I need to get back home to my kids. Or they don't have the funding to fight it. It can be really expensive. And we can talk about that too, fight these different charges and things like that. So sometimes it's just, honestly, it's easier for them to just take it, do it and move on,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, which is problematic as well. So like plea deals also, are a contributing factor to wrongful convictions.
0: And I mentioned earlier, uh, true crime, and there are cases that I have been interested in where you're trying to figure out who did this crime, and then there are cases where people are convicted and you have a question about whether the conviction was right. Of course, making a murder is a very famous example. Serial is another example. And in cases like that, it seems there is enough question for many of us that we go, I don't know. I mean, maybe this person did it or not, but I don't think that the trial was fair or the conviction was fair, but there seems to be so much resistance to giving that person another trial. This is a little bit different than what we've just been talking about, but do you have any thoughts on that? Why judges, whoever are so hesitant to say, yes, there was a problem here. We're going to give you another trial.
1: I think that that's a really interesting question. And some of the folks I've interviewed, we have talked about that most times when an individual is officially exonerated. So again, they have that evidence that indicates innocence. They rarely, if ever, receive any type of acknowledgement from the criminal legal system. So they don't receive an apology. And a lot of them talk about that is that it's not going to right all the wrongs, but it would help for people to acknowledge that they made mistakes. But they rarely, if ever, receive apologies from prosecutors or judges or law enforcement in the case or whatever. And so I ask them sometimes when they talk about that, I'm like, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's so much resistance on opening up cases and looking at cases? And what they talk about is that it's hard for people to admit that they're wrong. They don't want to admit that they made mistakes. They don't want to admit that they were at fault also with the criminal legal system. If those individuals that were involved in that wrongful conviction, those legal actors admitted fault, they could be held accountable and liable as far as like compensation goes. So there's a lot of money wrapped up in that as well. And so you have those actors that are hesitant to admit fault because then they might get in trouble, whether it be legally, whether it be financially. And so not only do they want to not admit that they made mistakes and that they were at fault, but they also don't want to be held accountable in those aspects either.
0: And we're talking about problems in the system here. First of all, I'm curious whether you think we have a good criminal justice system overall, and do you see ways to fix it?
1: So the the criminal legal system is definitely not, it, it has flaws in it, Just if we talk about in terms of wrongful convictions, they have very negative societal impact. So we see that they waste resources. It wastes people's time. It wastes people's money. We see that the person who actually committed the crime is free to commit additional crimes. And Mm -hmm. research indicates that they often do go on to commit other crimes. We also see that Survivors of crime are negatively impacted because they may have to come in over and over and retell their story, which can be traumatic. It impacts families and communities by removing this person. In most of my interviews, these were very productive members in their communities and in society overall. But it's also important to know that wrongful convictions, they they undermine and violate the basic tenets of our criminal legal system, you know, as being fair, balanced and only convicting and incarcerating individuals, guilty individuals. And so I definitely think that there are ways to improve the criminal legal system overall. And one of the ways that I think that we can do that is for one having this conversation about wrongful convictions because one, not everybody is aware that it happens. Mm. And they don't know how often it actually occurs. And so it's important for us to talk about these things and talk about these negative impacts so that we can work toward reducing the occurrences of wrongful convictions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I also think we currently, and when I say we, I say the collective we as society. I think oftentimes we still view the criminal legal system as being flawless, mm-hmm. which I think is problematic because we. What that does is that then shapes how people operate. And so what I mean by that is that we think that wrongful convictions don't occur. And when people do get wrongfully convicted, we say things like, well, they got off on a technicality or, well, they had something to do with it. And so I think overall society operates with this lens that While we say innocent until proven guilty, we actually view individuals through the lens of guilty until proven innocent, which is a problem because like I said, it contributes to these wrongful convictions and then impacts these individuals once they've been released. You mentioned race a few times here. Can we talk about that and what
0: systemic racism really is?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Easily put, systemic racism means it's built into the system. And so it's basically how the system operates. It operates based on race. So I think it's important to provide a little context of kind of how we got here. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have over 2 million people incarcerated, mostly for nonviolent offenses and small drug crimes. Now. What's important to understand with that is that not all groups experience the criminal legal system the same. We have some groups that are more heavily policed, arrested, sentenced, sentenced to longer terms, serve more time of that sentence in comparison to other groups. So we have a scholar. One of the terms we use in criminology is mass imprisonment or mass incarceration. And so What that means is, when the scholar was writing with this, there were two main points to his defining mass imprisonment. And first, that was the sheer number of individuals. So we saw this huge rise in the number of individuals that were being incarcerated. What we also saw was the concentration of imprisonment among specific groups within society. So when this scholar was writing, he was mainly referring to folks in the black community. But we've also had other scholars that have used this term to talk about folks in the indigenous community and the Hispanic and Latinx community because we see large numbers of those individuals impacted as well as far as the criminal legal system goes. So I I think that it's also important for us to note that people of color are overrepresented at each stage of the criminal legal system. So that refers to policing, arrest, sentencing, time served, and death penalty cases. We see that they're overrepresented in comparison to white folks. We also see that people of color are more likely to be wrongfully convicted in comparison to white individuals. And we see that people of color are more likely to experience violence at the hands of police in comparison to white individuals. So I think for, in the context of the conversation that you and I are having, I think that you, you can't have this conversation without speaking to race and the race, racial issues that continue to impact our criminal legal system. But how how does that happen? How
0: does this happen that we have a system that discriminates, that is biased against certain races. I don't even know how else to ask the question, because it's not like, I mean, yeah, you can have bad examples of, you know, this police officer is a member of the KKK, which is just almost cartoonish. But how do we end up with a system that is biased? That's a a difficult question for me.
1: I think that's an excellent question. You don't get here overnight. Mm. So it's important for us to consider also historical context, there are some great documentaries and books that indicate how we got here. So there's a documentary on Netflix called 13th. I've had
0: that in my queue for a long time and just haven't ever actually watched uh, it.
1: That one's really good at explaining the historical context of how we got here. And then the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is a really good book. And so kind of what they talk about in those works the ways that policy and laws have changed over the decades have disproportionately impacted folks of color,
0: mm-hmm. like like the penalty for crack cocaine versus regular cocaine.
1: Right, that's that's the, a really good example, I think. And so it's it's a combination of policies and laws that were written, how they were implemented, and things like that that helped get us, I think, to this this massive level. But then also as a scholar and as an individual with certain privileges as well, I have to acknowledge that I have blind spots and Mm -hmm. I have to acknowledge that I have biases. They oftentimes are probably implicit biases and I'm not aware of them. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people is there Mm -hmm. are these implicit biases and we have these different psychological tests and these different psychology papers that kind of talk about that how people have in, implicit biases because as a sociologist, like we're not removed from our social environment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you're socialized your whole life in different ways. One example that I think that's easy to understand is there have been some media studies that have looked at mm-hmm. news stories on television mm-hmm. and they have counted the number of faces portrayed as far as like criminals and crimes committed and arrested. And they find that folks with black and brown faces are put on your news media TV more often than white individuals. Mm -hmm. And so what that does over time, that helps shape this implicit biases of, okay, I associate criminal with black and brown faces because that's what I'm seeing every time I turn on my TV.
0: It's a complicated issue. And I mean, certainly I'm not an expert, but I don't know a simple solution to it. How, How do we fix all of that? We could talk about the penalties for crack cocaine, but how do we fix implicit bias within all of society?
1: So, a lot of researchers, but I'll refer to me and my colleagues. Like we, we research these really tough topics. That I mean, they're really big problems, and there a lot of times it can feel overwhelming. So, I think the first thing that, as a researcher, I don't want to do is be like, okay, there's it's too big, I can't. Yeah. Do and so, I think that. A couple of things that can contribute is one, like having these conversations Mm. related to these different topics that one, we might not be aware of or not be familiar with, but then also creating the space to learn about these different topics and these different aspects. So I think that that's really important. I think that, you know, we could require more training and education for different folks in the criminal legal system. And then also like hold, hold these folks accountable. There are oftentimes these folks that are contributing members to a wrongful conviction, nothing happens. And so I think if we started hold, holding folks accountable, that would help. It'd be a start at least because they would see like, okay, if I make a mistake, if I create this problem, like I'm going to get in trouble like mm-hmm. most other folks do in their job. Right. right. So I think like, When whether it be acts of violence or whether it be lying or whether it be hiding evidence or whatever, like I said, when it's found that folks have made mistakes and they have problems have occurred, we have to address them. Mm -hmm. And I think right now we could be doing a better job with that.
0: There's a push right now that is uh, people are saying defund the police. Can you talk about what that means and why people are saying that? Because I do think a lot of people hear that and they think it means eliminate the police. And I don't believe, at least for the vast majority of people, that's
1: not really what they're after. So as I mentioned, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Mm-hmm. So we spend over a hundred and eighty billion dollars each year on various aspects of the criminal legal system. And as I've indicated, you don't get to this point overnight, right? So how did we get here? So what we've seen is changes in policy that have made our criminal legal system more punitive. So for example, if someone is arrested, you're more likely to be convicted, receive a longer sentence, and serve more time of that sentence than in previous decades. So overall, our I know sometimes there are conversations about the criminal legal system maybe being people should receive some type of rehabilitation. That's not occurring. Our system, like I said, is very much a punitive system. And so over the last few decades, what we've seen is a steady increase in the budgets allocated for the criminal legal system, such as police departments. But what we've also seen are extreme budget cuts, to other social services such as mental health, substance use, community programs, education. So kind of an example is that largely prisons and jails operate as mental health institutions because a lot of those again have had budget cuts and had to close down. So we have fewer and fewer mental health hospitals. and like I said, our prison and our jails are often operating as a mental health hospital, which again, that is not what it's designed for. And those individuals are not necessarily trained and equipped to be able to handle those types of individuals that need specialized care. So when we talk about this idea of defunding the police, it's largely more of a reallocation of funds to other programs so programs such as education, again, like we've, we've seen over the past several years, education, the budgets for education have just decreased. Um, so we're not investing in education. It's just reallocating those funds to, like I said, other social services, whether it be education or mental health, substance use, different community programs to strengthen communities and things like that. So
0: we started this conversation talking about your research, and we talked about how people are wrongfully convicted and sort of some of the things that happen to them after they're released. But we didn't get much into the specifics. What are you learning about people who are wrongfully convicted?
1: Wrongfully convicted individuals spend on average 14 years incarcerated. And so for the folks that I've interviewed so far, my sample average was 15, 15 years with a range of three years to 28 years. I have a participant who spent 28 years. Seven are female, eight are male. They're between the ages of 28 and 74. There are seven white folks, seven black folks, and four Hispanic folks. I think it's important to point out that the burden of exoneration is most often borne by the individual who was wrongfully convicted. And the path to exoneration is extremely complex, lengthy, and costly, making it very difficult for individuals to accomplish this. Now, it's also important to point out that a criminal record is not automatically sealed or expunged when someone is officially exonerated. That may be an additional process they have to go through, but then also, you know, Google searches can reveal things years later, even if their official criminal record was sealed. So that's something that folks have to deal with upon release as well. But for my sample in particular, the majority of them had no previous criminal record or prior conviction. Because I think sometimes when we maybe consider this population, that might be an assumption that we have, is that they had, you know, these previous encounters with law enforcement. And so beyond like traffic violations, which most of us have, my participants didn't have that. They didn't have some lengthy criminal record. So upon release, exonerated individuals have many needs. So they need housing, they need employment, they need to be reconnected with their family, physical and mental health services, getting identification. So there are all these things that they have to try and do um, once they've been released. And as I mentioned earlier, exonerated individuals often don't qualify for the same services as those released on probation or parole. So that can be more difficult for them. So also I said, you know, exonerated individuals are often released with no community reentry plan, no access to service with little or no notice of their release, making it difficult for them to contact their family and friends. So again, I say all this to provide a little uh, context for what are they dealing with upon release. Now, so with my research, I talk about, or I ask them about employment, education, and training before they're wrongfully convicted. And then I talk, I ask about experience while they're incarcerated. And then I also ask about experiences since they've been released. So we can maybe see in what ways does being wrongfully convicted impact employment overall. And so before wrongful incarceration, I find that individuals fall into one of two categories. One is they were working good jobs. They enjoyed the jobs that they were doing. They made good money. So they were, quote unquote, on a good path and they were happy. Or maybe they were still in school. They were going to college to try and you know, pursue a particular career. The other category of individuals, they were so young, so like, 17, 18 years old, that they didn't have the opportunity to really develop any type of work history. They maybe worked some type of after-school job, but again, they were so young, they didn't have the opportunity to pursue higher education or pursue a particular work trajectory. So as I mentioned, finding employment after incarceration is really important. So it's critical for financially supporting themselves and their families, it contributes to society, and it provides structure and meaning to their lives. However, I'm also finding that employment is very difficult for them to gain oftentimes. They may lack education and training. They also have these large gaps on their resume, right? They've spent 10, 15, 20, 25 years incarcerated, and so that's time out of the labor force. And then also the the technological changes within society. So if you just consider how technology has changed in the past 10 years, again, much less 15, 20 years. So being able to navigate all that. So for example, in terms of employment, almost all applications are online now. And so they're having to try and um, navigate employment via the internet, which they may not be very familiar with and may not have a lot of experience using. So that can be really challenging. And then also these individuals experience this stigma Mm. of being incarcerated and being in that location. We're often stigmatized in the very same ways. And any effects that come
0: like mentally from being incarcerated, they still have. I assume that would have to change you as a person regardless of whether you committed the crime, living in that situation, I cannot imagine how it doesn't change a person.
1: That's a really good point. It gets to the next thing I was going to say is that there are all these challenges in trying to ob- obtain employment, but once employment is obtained, it can be difficult for them to maintain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And so one of the examples I wrote down is that, Managing the trauma, like you said, of Mm. being incarcerated is really difficult. And folks talk about having anxiety, depression, PTSD, trust issues Mm. with their employers and different things like that. And so one of the examples that I wrote down to provide is one of my participants talks about working a job. And at this job, the janitors would come around and clean or hand out the mail or different things like that but they had all of these keys mm. and so the keys would jingle right and all of those keys were a reminder to this individual of correctional officers so every day when he heard those keys jingling he was triggered and he'd have to kind of like stop for a minute amongst himself and be like okay because mm. that was a trigger on a daily basis mm.
0: yeah the things you don't even think about, the ways that this is awful for a person that most of us would never even think of because we don't live through that. Mm -hmm. That's all horrible. So I think lots of people, uh, and I assumed this in the past, that if you're wrongfully convicted, you just, you sue, I guess, and the state gives you millions of dollars and you're set for life. It certainly sounds like that is not the case from what you're saying.
1: So with that, it's, First, important to point out that not all states have legislation that address compensation. So in some states, that's not even a thing. People Hmm. can't even pursue that. Only 35 states, the federal government and Washington DC have laws that address compensation. Now, what's also important to understand about compensation is existing legislation may have requirements that make some individuals ineligible. So for example, We talked earlier about false confessions, right? And so false confessions may not be eligible for compensation. So Mm. if that is, you know, an aspect of your case, then you may be ineligible. But also, again, I think it's important to note that the process of receiving compensation can be complex, it can be lengthy, it can be expensive, and it's really difficult for folks to get. And only 41% of wrongfully convicted individuals ever received any form of compensation. But then also the amounts that they received. There are cases where some folks have received millions of dollars, but you also have to consider where they were coming from if they spent 25 years on death row for a crime they didn't commit. But not everybody gets that. And receiving compensation, especially in millions and millions of dollars, isn't as common as folks might think it is.
0: And you are getting to know these uh, specific people who have been wrongfully convicted. I'm sure that you're learning things about them as people. What what kind of people are they?
1: They're these really interesting, down-to-earth, nice people. They wanna tell their story. They're open, they're honest. They're just really, really interesting, kind people. I think an assumption I maybe had about this population before I started working with them is they might be angry and bitter and you know mad and want revenge. But I don't find that. I find that they are upset that things happen to them and they want to tell their stories so that we can prevent it from happening to other people. But they they want to move on with their life. They wanna work. They want to have families. They want to contribute to society, different things like that. And one of the things is I asked all of my participants too. I was like, what's something you want society to know about you? And a common pattern is that they were living this American dream. Mm. And they were like, that's what I want. I just want to, I want to acknowledge that this happened to me and I want to live the American dream. I want to live the American life. Some other things they kind of mentioned too, are like, It's important, as we've talked about throughout this whole thing, wrongful convictions, they do occur. Mm
2: -hmm. They
1: do happen. And we have to acknowledge that our legal system is not flawless. And again, these experiences show that they also talk about how this could happen to anybody. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: While we do have research that indicates black and brown folks are disproportionately impacted. This can't happen to anybody, and it does. It happens to a wide range of folks. And like I said, they were talking about how before this happened, they were living a normal life, and then this happened. And in some cases, some folks talk in detail how it completely destroyed their life mm. in various, various ways. But then also, they want folks to know compensation is not automatic. And in some cases, it's non-existent. Mm. Like I said, they're beautiful people that had just something horrible happen to them, and just the resiliency and the kindness that they continue to operate with is just amazing to me.
0: I'd like to thank Michelle for joining me. If you'd like to reach us to respond to this episode or suggest future topics, you can email pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there's no T in pokespodcasts. And with that, We'll end with our favorite question. How are the arts and sciences making the world a better place?
1: The arts and sciences make the world a better place in, I think, a variety of reasons. They provide a space for us to have really critical and important conversations about these challenging issues that we continue to face within society. And so it provides this space for us to have these conversations and learn and grow and Hopefully, what we try to do, I think, is consider solutions and how do we deal with these different problems and try and make society a better place. And I think that the arts and sciences, they do that. They provide the space not only to have the conversations, but to also consider what solutions might be, essentially to make society more equitable.